Chapter Three of Pocket Island. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Pocket Island by Charles Clark Munn. Chapter Three. Nemesis. While Captain Wolf was carrying out his scheme to rob his accomplices in smuggling, he was planning a still more despicable act and that was to take his hoard of money, stow all valuables on the sloop, sail to a Nova Scotia port, and, when near it, to kill the Indian, sell the sea fox, and cross the ocean. There were several weighty reasons for this. In the first place, those bags of coin behind the rocking stone weighed on his mind. He was a miser, and never before had he so much wealth he could call his own. A few hundred dollars at the most were all he had ever possessed. Now he had thousands. Money was his god, and to escape from danger and carry it with him seemed prudent. He was aware he was suspected of being, and in fact was known to be, a smuggler. While as yet undiscovered in his island lair, he might at any time be pounced upon. His act of swindling his accomplices, he knew well, would create revengeful enemies, who would spare neither time nor money to hunt him down. Then there was the Indian whom he had also robbed from the start. He might become suspicious and betray him, or, worse yet, discover the secret of the rocking stone. Wolf had discovered it by accident. Why might not the Indian? With murder in his heart, Wolf, for the first time, began to be afraid. He put the pistols he had always carried in perfect order and ready for instant use. So far as he had discovered, the Indian possessed neither knife nor pistol, but nevertheless Wolf feared him, and the more he realized the danger he had incurred in duping his assistants in smuggling and how much he was really in the power of his giant-framed partner, the more his fears grew. It may be thought it was conscience working in him, but it was not, for such as he have none. It was guilty fear, and that only. This so preyed upon his mind during his last trip to the coast that he could hardly sleep. Then he began to imagine that the Indian was suspicious of him. To allay that danger he doubled the small share of profit he had given his partner, knowing full well if he had no chance to spend it, it would all come back to him in the end. Then he set about deceiving him by an offer to buy the sea fox and pay what he believed the Indian would consider a fabulous price. It was a fatal mistake. The Indian had no real idea of the value of his sloop. It had come to him as payment for his share of a successful fishing trip to the banks years before and he had become attached to that craft. It had been his home, his floating wigwam, for a long time, and for Wolf to want to buy it hurt him. "'Me no sell boat,' he said when the offer was made. "'Me want sloop long time.' Wolf, who valued all things from a miser's standpoint, could not understand that there might lurk in the Indian a tinge of sentiment. He was mistaken and the mistake was a little pitfall placed in his way. There was another which he was also to blame for, and yet, like the first, he was not aware of it. 
In the cave where he had stored his cargo and prepared it for smuggling, he kept a large can of cheap and highly inflammable oil on a rock shelf, just above the flat stone where he, by the light of two lamps, had counted his wealth time and again. True to his nature, when he bought the oil he bought the cheapest, and unknown to him the can had sprung a leak, and while he had been absent for weeks at a time, the oil had run out, saturating the rock below and forming little pools on the cave floor among the loose stones. Wolf had not noticed this, or, if he had, had thought nothing of it. Neither did he realize how fate could utilize his miser's instinct in purchasing the cheap can as a means to bring together and bless two lives unknown to him. We seldom do notice the snags in life that usually trip us. By the time the last voyage of the Sea Fox had been made and she returned to the pocket, the relations between Wolf and the Indian were in danger of rupture. Wolf distrusted his partner, and yet believed he had lulled all suspicion. He had never failed before in duping anyone he had set out to. Why should he in this case? Still, he was uneasy and resolved to end it all as soon as possible. But Indians have one peculiarity that will baffle even the shrewdest Jew. They never talk. Their faces are always as expressionless as a graven image. While contemplating the most cruel murder, they never show the least change in expression, nor do their eyes show the faintest shadow of an emotion. They are stolid surly and sphinx-like always wolf's partner was like his race and not even by the droop of an eyelid did he betray the slowly gathering storm of hate and rage within he brooded over the hurt he felt when wolf had wanted to buy his sloop and believing the jew meant to rob him of her he grew suspicious and watched wolf not by word or sign did he show it and the jew saw it not Wolf watched the Indian as closely, only the Indian knew it, and Wolf did not. It was now Wolf against Fox, and Fox against Wolf, and the swarthy Fox was getting the best of it. Meanwhile, the loading of the sloop for her final departure proceeded. Wolf had planned to use the Indian's help to the last, and when all was ready, enter the cave, secure the money about his person, and sail away. The cave entrance was under water for about two hours of high tide, and Wolf waited until a day came when the tide served early. He had planned to go in just before the rising water closed the entrance, thus securing himself from intrusion, and then, when the tide fell away, to come out ready to start. The day and hour came, and he entered the cave. Unknown to him, the Indian followed. Wolf lighted a lamp and sat down. When the sea had closed the entrance, no sound entered. Wolf waited. Ten, twenty, thirty minutes passed, and all sound of the ocean ceased. He believed himself alone. He lighted the other lamp, placing both on the flat rock. Then he went to the rocking stone, and pushing it back, took from the niche, one by one, the bags of coin. 
These he carried to the table stone and poured their contents into a glittering pile. From behind a rock, a pair of sinister eyes watched him. He felt that he had two hours of absolute seclusion and need not hurry. He began to slowly pile the coins in little stacks and count them. There was no reason for haste, and he counted carefully. He enjoyed this beyond all else in his vile life and desired to prolong the pleasure. The money was all his, and he gloated over it. No sense of awe at his separation from all things human in that damp, silent cavern, still as a tomb, came over him. No thought of the murder he was soon to commit, no feeling of remorse, no impulse of good, no thought of the future or of God entered his soul. Only the miser's joy of possession. Not a sound entered the cavern, and only the chink of the coin, as he counted it, disturbed the deathly silence. Still the sinister eyes watched him from out the darkness. Stack after stack he piled till all was counted. Eight of one thousand dollars each, and twelve of five hundred dollars, all in gold, and twenty of one hundred dollars each in silver. A tall, swarthy form crept noiselessly toward him. It was the supreme moment of his life, and as he gloatingly gazed on the stacks glittering in the dim light before him, a delirium of joy hushed all thought and deadened all sense, even that of hearing. Nearer and nearer drew the swarthy form, and as Wolf tasted the sublime ecstasy of a miser's joy, his heaven, his God, Suddenly, two cold, massive hands closed tight about his throat. But men die hard. Even while unable to breathe, and as he writhed and twisted beneath the awful menace of death bearing him down, his hand suddenly touched the pistol in his belt. The next instant it was drawn and fired full against the Indian's breast. Then a shriek of death agony as his swarthy foe leaped upward against the rocky shelf, a crash of breaking glass, a flash of fierce flame bursting into red billows, curling and seething all about him, and turning the cave into a mimic hell. Outside could be heard the sound of a bellowing bull. End of chapter 3 Recording by Roger Moline